Well, a couple of weeks ago, I found myself sick. I, I, I was having all the symptoms. And so I got a test, uh, I tested myself and it was negative. I continued to struggle though. And so uh, I, I realized I, I had the flu. And so it wasn't an extreme case though, because I felt okay. In fact, I, I told Darby, I told our team like, hey, if I'm feeling like this, I'll still be able to preach. Like, I, I think I can make it, you know? If I get a stool, maybe I'll just have to sit down. I don't know, but, but I feel like I could make it. And so my, my wife said to me though, you know, I'm not sure if it's the flu. I think I know what it is. And I'm like, okay, okay. Well, you know, what is it? And she said with a smirk on her face and super confident, you got the man cold. And I was like, okay, listen, that's not fair. All right. I haven't been that whiny. I haven't been that complaining. Okay. I haven't been that desperate. Okay. But I, who knows? Maybe she was right. You, you know, uh, my, my son Levi is kind of dramatic too, when it comes to being sick. All right. Where we get a little whiny, we get a little dramatic. And I think almost every woman in the room would say, Hey, that's all men. All right. You guys are whiny and dramatic and desperate when you're sick. You need to, you know, you need to man up, right? Right. You got the man cold and you need to man up when you got the man cold. Uh, there's typically, okay. I'm not going to say it's always true. I'm not sure it's true for all of you guys and, 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 and gals, okay? But typically, men are a little bit weaker when they're sick. Uh, we, we complain more. We're, we're, we're whinier, right? We're, we're, we're just a little bit more desperate, okay? We haven't had to put up with as much as you women have, so uh, we're, we're, we're a little bit whinier when, when, we, when we get sick. It's just typically, typically true, okay? And my wife would say it's 100% true in our house, okay? So that, that, that the men are a little bit whinier when they're sick than the women are. Well, today you're gonna get a glimpse of two very desperate dudes and they don't got the man cold, okay? They are sick, sick, okay? They, they are like really sick, okay? And not like, you know, kind of roll your eyes sick, you know, they're, they're sick, all right? They, they got some bad struggles. They are desperate dudes. And I want you to see what their response is, what they do in their desperation at the lowest place they can possibly be. Well, how, how they respond in that moment. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter five. We are in a verse by verse study of the gospel of Luke. A little over a year ago, our church decided to begin to prioritize teaching through the scripture verse by verse. And so we started with the book of Daniel. Uh, last year, we did the book of Colossians. And since last fall, we've been in the gospel of Luke. And, and we just believe that's a better way to study the scripture. It's to study it in context uh, where you get the full meaning and you get the full understanding of what's going on here. It's very dangerous just to pluck verses out of context and, and talk about them. You can make a verse say whatever you want it to say if you just pluck one verse or, or a couple of verses here out of context. When you study it in context and you read everything before it and you're reading everything out. It's just hard to do that. It's real hard. And so when you study the scripture in context, I just believe it gives you a better and deeper understanding, which leads to a better and deeper faith, which I think leads to a deeper love, a deeper worship, a deeper sense of mission. When you study the scripture verse by verse, like we've been doing. And we've said, we're not just studying it in here. We're studying in our small groups and our city groups. Uh, right now, we actually have some groups meeting right now. And, and then all throughout this next week, they will break these verses down, uh, talk about them as a, a small group and discuss them and pray about them. And then in our daily devotionals, Monday through Friday, this next week under the Bible study tab, 
we have these same verses broken down with commentary, application, and prayer points for you as well. And then we also ask our families to study the Gospel of Luke together. And we provide the table talk as a resource for you under the Bible study tab as well, so that you can take your family and discuss everything we talked about on Sunday mornings. And I'll remind you that your kids, our students right now, are studying these exact same passages with a lot of the exact same points and big ideas to help create that common conversation around a lunch table or their dinner table where you can discuss the word of God with your family. And we offer the table talk for you this week as a resource to help those conversations. So our hope in this series that we're in, in the gospel of Luke is that every one of us will be drawn to Jesus. Maybe some of us will fall in love with Jesus for the first time. Maybe a lot of us will fall in love with Jesus all over again as we study the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So many things in this world, in this culture, are trying to pull us to the left and the right. My prayers with the Gospel of Luke will be drawn up. We'll be drawn up into a relationship, into a love for Jesus. So we're in Luke chapter five. We're gonna be looking at 12 through 27 today. We're gonna break it down into two different passages, two different sections here. And if you've been with us, you know that Jesus has begun his ministry of preaching and miraculous signs and wonders have begun. If you haven't been here, definitely go catch up on our app or on our podcast. If you would, open your Bible, Luke chapter five, open our app now. If you have our app, uh, click message notes and then all the verses and points and everything are there for you. You can even fill in the blank as we go. Here's what's interesting is that now the Pharisees are starting to become a prominent character and figure on the scene. And we're gonna see that to be true again here today. And here's what's interesting. Before we even dive in, I just wanna say a word about the Pharisees. Um, as I was studying this week, one of the commentators, one of the theologians said this about the Pharisees, which we're gonna see here in the passages today. The Pharisees were a sect of Judaism, a lot like the Sadducees, and just like any denomination within a certain religion, uh, they, they stress or they emphasize different things. Well, the Pharisees were very politically conservative, far more so than their other religious counterparts. Yet at the same time, religiously, spiritually, politically conservative, but religiously, spiritually, very liberal, because they had elevated their own oral law to the level of scripture. When you do that, <laughs> you're in dangerous territory. Anytime you begin to elevate your own thoughts and ideas to the level of scripture, and you're not submitting them to the authority of scripture, that's a no-no. You're in dangerous territory. So politically, this group is very conservative. Spiritually, religiously though, in one sense, they're very liberal because they've elevated their own thoughts and ideas, what was called the oral law, their oral traditions, to the level of scripture. And that's never good. So here's what's interesting about the Pharisees. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, he's always speaking to you. And he's always speaking to me. No matter where you find yourself politically, spiritually, religiously, Jesus is talking to you in one sense or another. And so I'm excited for us as we dive in to see the way that Jesus approaches the Pharisees, not just today, but in probably over the next months as we look at the ministry of Jesus. All right, let's look at 12 through 16. If first, if you would stand and Sherry is going to come 
and read the scripture for us this morning. Sherry. Good morning. My name is Sherry Rodriguez, and I'm part of the prayer ministry here at the city. So Luke chapter 5, verse 12. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. When the man saw Jesus, he bowed with his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. And instantly the leprosy disappeared. Then Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster, and vast crowds came to hear him preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Thank you, Sherry. You can be seated. So crowds are coming to hear Jesus preach and to be healed of their diseases. But Luke says Jesus would often withdraw from the crowds, from those who wanted to hear him, for those who wanted to be healed. He would often withdraw to the wilderness for prayer to to spend time with his father. So I'll say this again. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Some get their temporary miracle and some don't. Everyone's there to hear him preach. Everyone's there to have to be healed of sicknesses and diseases. Some are getting their temporary miracles and and some are not. And I don't know about you, but that's been my experience. I think it's been a lot of our experiences. Some of us get our temporary miracles and and some of us don't. And we're going to see why that is here in just a a second, but we see again, Luke's emphasis in Jesus's ministry is the priority to preach and to withdraw. Two weeks ago, we saw how uh, people are wanting to be healed. And he says, I, I got to leave. I got to go to the next town to go and preach the good news of the kingdom, because that's why I have come. People are waiting to be healed. And he leaves today. We see people are wanting to hear him. They're wanting to be healed. And he's withdrawing from, uh, from the crowds to go and pray. And so we see Luke's priority on the ministry of Jesus is preaching and prayer. Sure, it's to also perform miracles. That's a part of his ministry, but that's not the priority here. He leaves crowds in order to go preach. We saw that two weeks ago. He's leaving the crowds to go and pray as we see today. And then he even tells this leper that he heals, don't don't go and tell anyone. Don't go and tell anyone, go and show yourself to the priest. We'll talk about that here in a second. But people have wondered, why does Jesus say this? We'll see him say this often. Don't go tell anyone about this miracle that I've performed. Why the secrecy, Jesus? Why so hush-hush about the miracles? Well, most theologians believe the reason Jesus would say that is that he didn't want the word just to get out about being some sort of magician, just a healer. He, he always wanted the miracle to point to the message. And so he, he would perform miracles. They were called signs in order to point to, we said this a couple of weeks ago, something bigger and deeper and grander. The truth of the gospel message, the truth of the kingdom of God. And so most people believe that's why he would say, don't, don't go around just talking about the miracles. 
Because that's, that's not even really the point. That's not the priority. We're, the, the, the priority, the point is the message. This disease that this man has, leprosy, was disgusting. Luke, a doctor, saying this man has an advanced case of, of leprosy. It, it would have it made you draw back like, oh, gosh, like that's, that's gross. Like it, it would have made you draw back. It would have made you, com- commentators I read this week were saying, it would have made you physically ill to see someone with this advanced stage of leprosy. Leprosy was incurable. It was a slow creeping disease all over your skin. It would creep and crawl and it would never stop. Slowly disabling you, disfiguring you in the process. You would have lesions all over your body. The disease would begin to move inside to your internal organs. You would begin to lose the sense and the feeling of pain. You would lose your sense of smell. You would lose your taste. You would lose your hearing. You would lose your sight as leprosy slowly, but surely would kill you. It was a slow, awful, disgusting disease. Spiritually, religiously, it made you unclean in the temple so that you couldn't attend the synagogue or you couldn't attend the temple in Jerusalem. So leprosy became to be a symbol that you couldn't approach God. You were looked at as an outcast, as a sinner, that you were sick. You had this skin disease, this leprosy because you had sinned against God. And so not only was it a symbol of not approaching God, but you would be forced to live outside of the city. And so you could not do life in your community, in your spiritual community, in your faith family, and you couldn't even be around your own physical family. So this disease would cut you off from all of your senses, from all of your faculties, from all of your abilities. It would cut you off from the temple, from the synagogue, so that you could not be in your faith family, with your faith community, worshiping God. And then it would cut you off from community and life itself as you could not be around your own family, in your own home. You would have to live outside the city. And if you touched someone or came into the city, it meant you would be stoned to death. So this disease not only affected you, it affected everyone around you. It would kill you and it would kill all of your relationships. And all of this, once again, is a picture of something deeper, grander, And we'll get to that in a little while. But this disease and the way that it would destroy you and destroy all of your relationships, I'm sure you can picture as a symbol. It's a picture of something else that we'll get to here in a little bit. This man is desperate, obviously. He's desperate. He falls on his face before Jesus. And he says, if you can, if you are willing, rather, if you are willing, because you can, And so if you're willing, you can, you can make me clean. You can make me clean. It's just a matter of if you're willing. And so here's what this man recognizes that Jesus can heal him. It's not a matter of his power. It's just a matter of his will. So it's never a matter of Jesus's or God's ability. It's always a matter of his sovereignty. 
And here's what this man does. He falls on his face before Jesus, realizing and confessing, it's not a matter of your ability, it's just a matter of your sovereignty. And so he falls on his face before Jesus, realizing and understanding God owes him nothing. He's not demanding something. He's humbly asking for Jesus to have mercy onto him and to perform this miracle. But here's what he realizes in his humility before God, you owe me nothing. You can do everything, but you owe me nothing. It's not a matter of your ability, it's about your sovereignty. I'm owed nothing, but I'm gonna throw myself at the mercy of Jesus. And here's what he says. Here's the request. You can make me clean. If you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean. His request is not just physical. He says, you can heal me. That's, that's the physical part and make me clean. That's the, that's the spiritual part. We'll, we'll talk about that more, but he says, you can, you can make me clean. This isn't just a physical request. This is also a spiritual, it's a religious request. He's not just asking for a physical healing. He recognizes that this disease is cutting himself, not only off from his own faculties and abilities, it's cutting him off from his faith family, from the presence of God. It's cutting him off from his real family. And so he's saying, you can heal me and make me clean. This guy gets it. It's not just about the physical healing, it's about so much more than that. This is about restoring his closeness, his relationship with God. It's about restoring him back into right relationships with his family. He gets that the, the physical healing would be really stopping short of God's best for his life. That that's not what it's all about. You can heal me and make me clean. That's the greater, that's the grander, that's the bigger miracle, making me clean, where he could begin to approach God once again. He could begin to approach his community, his faith family, and his physical family. And so Jesus in his mercy touches him, which is wild. Because just imagine with me here for a second, no one has probably touched this man in years. He's been living outside the city. He's had no physical contact with anyone. To touch anyone would mean that he was stoned to death. No one has touched this man in a long time. That's first. Secondly, to touch an unclean leprous person would mean that you would become spiritually, ceremonially, religiously unclean in the process. So, so here's what's why Jesus, the perfect son of God, the perfect, clean, righteous son of God touches someone who is ceremonially, religiously, spiritually unclean. No one would do that. No one would do that. And so Jesus in touching this man, becoming unclean in the process, makes this man clean. Jesus, okay, hold on to this. Jesus 
touches him, and in touching him becomes unclean. He takes his uncleanliness and gives him his cleanliness. He takes the leper's uncleanliness by touching him. He takes the leper's uncleanliness and he gives him the cleanliness of Jesus, his own cleanliness. There's an exchange that takes place here. So, so in touching the leper to heal him, Jesus becomes the healer by becoming a leper himself. Now hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. But I want you to notice the exchange that took place when Jesus touches this unclean, leprous man. Jesus touches him. He's clean. And Jesus says, go, don't tell anyone, but go to the priests, offer the offering that you're supposed to offer when you've been made clean from leprosy, from a skin disease. So bring the offering, go to the priest, show yourself to them. Why? Why does Jesus tell this man to go and show himself to the priest and bring the, the offering, Jesus said, that you were supposed to bring according to the law required of Moses, he says, of those who've been healed of leprosy? Two, two reasons. Jesus tells this man to go to the priest, to show himself to the priest and to make this offering. So that number one, his cleansing would be a legal cleansing. Jesus cleanses this man, but because Jesus says that in him, every letter, every jot and tittle, it's like saying every dot of the I and cross of the T will be of the law, will be fulfilled in him. He's not a law breaker. He's, he's a law keeper. And, and more than that, he's the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. And so Jesus in telling this man to go and submit himself to the priest, he's, he's doing so according to the law. This is what the law required. And so this is going to be a legal cleansing. When this man went to the priest, there would be a ceremony that was declaring by law that this man is now clean. He was unclean, cut off from his people, cut off from his faith community. And now he's clean and they would perform a ceremony and make it a legal change of status, change of standing in the community where he will now, according to the law, have a legal claim to go back to the temple, to go back to the synagogue, to go back with his faith family and to be back with his physical family. So Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priests so that you can walk through this ceremony of being legally clean in your faith family and in our community once again. And, and here's a picture of the ceremony we get in Leviticus. Here, here's what would happen. You gotta catch this. When you would go and show yourself to the priest showing that you had been healed or cleansed in Leviticus, you had been healed of your skin disease and you wanted to be legally made clean in the eyes of the family and lives of the community, you would go to the priest, you would show yourself to the priest, they would inspect you. And if they thought you were healed of your skin disease, if it was an advanced case of leprosy, unless there was some sort of miraculous intervention by God, you, you would die. But if it was uh, an early onset skin disease or not, maybe not leprosy itself, and you were able to be cleansed of it, you were able to be healed of it, you would go submit yourself to the priest. They would examine you. They would see that you are no longer sick. You are no longer ill. And then they would perform this ceremony. You'd have to bring two doves. 
and they would take one of the doves and kill it. And they would drain the blood of the bird into this bowl. Then they would put water in the bowl and then they would take hyssop and they would dip it into the blood and they would wipe it all over the living bird. And then they would go and set the living bird free. And so here's the picture. You can't miss this. Here's, here's the picture. Here's what Jesus was telling the man to go and do with the priest to perform this ceremony, to make this offering. Here's the picture. The picture is that you are set free. You've been cleansed because a substitute died in your place. The only way to be clean religiously, ceremonially before God was to have something die in your place and to take the blood of the living clean thing and to cover the dead or the dying dead cursed thing so that the living thing could be set free and fly away clean, cleansed by the blood. That was a ceremony. That was the picture. And so Jesus touches this man He's cleansed and he says, go and offer yourself to the priest. Bring the offerings, go through the ceremony so that you can be legally cleansed. And in the process, see the picture once again, that through the shedding of blood, there is forgiveness of sins and entry into the presence and favor of God. Not by effort, not by doing better, not by trying harder, not by putting yourself back together, but through the death of a clean substitute dying in your place and you, the uncleaned sinner, separated from God, cut off from God, cleansed by that blood are now able to go free, clean in the eyes of God. That was the picture. That's the first reason. Jesus told this man to go and show himself to the priest. The, the second reason Jesus told this man to go and show himself what to the priest was so that the Jewish leaders might know the time of the Messiah has arrived. Let, let me explain it to you like this. John the Baptist is in prison. Everyone else is getting their miracle. He's not getting his miracle. He's in prison and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the one that was promised? Are you really the son of God? Because John the Baptist is thinking, I'm sure like you have before, everyone else is getting their miracle, but I'm not getting mine. So who are you really? Are you really who you said you are? And here's what Jesus says to John the Baptist's disciples. And they go back and, and tell him what Jesus said. Jesus said, go and back and tell John, the lepers are healed. Why is that a big deal? Why would that have meant anything to John the Baptist? Here's what John the Baptist knew. Here's what every Jewish religious leader, every Pharisee would have known. That if lepers are being healed, God is moving and God is working. Because only God could heal a leper. This is what, this is what they knew. That's why Jesus told John's disciples to go back and tell him that. Because Jesus knew if John knows lepers are being healed, it means God's on the move, God's at work, God has come. In 2 Kings chapter five, there's this 
A very prominent general, his name's Naaman, he's got leprosy. He hears that there's a God in Israel who performs miraculous signs and wonders. He goes to the king and says, I've got leprosy, I need to, I need to be healed. And the king says this, am I God, the king of Israel at the time, am I God that I could heal leprosy? Only God could do that and sends the man away. Naaman's frustrated. Elisha, the prophet, hears about it and sends for Naaman, tells him to go and wash himself in this river, this lake, seven times. He does so, he's healed. And Naaman comes back to Elisha and says this, now I know that Israel's God is the one true God. Because only God can heal leprosy. The prophecy of the Messiah, that's why it meant so much to John the Baptist, that's why it would have meant so much to the Jewish leaders and teachers of the law. To know that someone is going around healing leprosy means that, that God has come. That the time of the Messiah is here. And we know that this piqued the Jewish religious leader's interest we, we know that this sign, maybe even in particular, maybe especially more so than the other ones, was of special interest to the Jewish religious leaders because you're about to see in the verses we're about to read, it says the religious leaders and teachers of the law start coming from all over the place to listen to what Jesus has to say. Their interest has been piqued. They're wondering, has the Messiah come? Who, who is this man that is healing the leper. And so now let's go to verse 17. Let's see what happens next. If you would stand, we're going to read the scripture together. Logan is going to come and take us through the end of verse 26. Logan. Good morning, guys. My name is Logan Mitchell. Uh, me and my wife uh, go here to the city. This is our church home. And uh, we are involved in first impressions. Uh, we're involved with City U with Jacob and Barry. And then we also have a city group uh, where we lead uh, college kids. Um, so y'all follow me along in verse 17. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and the teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all of Galilee and Judea, as well from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd, right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, who does he think he is? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier for you to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. Amen. Thank you, Logan. You can be seated. So again, we see a desperate man. 
He's literally on a stretcher. He has his friends bring him to come see Jesus. There's a great crowd. They can't get into the house. And, and who is the crowd Luke says made up of? Teachers of religious law from all over the place. Luke even, it's almost like he makes a sarcastic remark. It just seemed that these men were showing up from every, every village, from all Galilee and Judea, and as well as there were some from Jerusalem. And so there's this huge crowd that's gathered. These guys are trying to get their friend in to see Jesus because he's paralyzed. They can't get in. They go up on the roof. They lower him down in front of Jesus. It's interesting that these guys are willing to go through the crowd and around the crowd just to get to Jesus. They're undeterred. They had every excuse in the world to give up but they are undeterred, willing to do whatever it takes to get to Jesus and to get their friend to Jesus. What, whatever it takes, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to bring our friend to Jesus. We will not be deterred. There will be no excuses. No one is gonna stop us from seeing Jesus. No one is going to stop us from the healing, from the deliverance that we need. No one is going to stop me from hearing the word of the Lord. There's no hypocrite that's gonna stop me. There's no religious person that's gonna stop me. No, 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 uh, there's no excuses. It's whatever it takes to get to Jesus and to hear the word of the Lord. No excuses, whatever it takes undeterred. And Jesus says he can see their faith. He can see it. You see, Jesus not only sees everything you've ever done, he sees every attitude and intention and, and thought you've ever had. He sees their hearts. He sees the faith in their hearts that's being made evident by their works. James, the brother of Jesus said, faith without works is dead. There's no such thing as a faith that doesn't produce a life of works for the glory of God. Jesus can see their faith, but Jesus also sees something else. He sees the hearts of the Pharisees. He heals the man. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees are thinking, it says they're thinking to themselves that who is this guy? He, he, he's committing blasphemy because no one can forgive sins. No one has the authority to give sin, but but God alone. So who does this guy think that he is? Does he really think he's God? Because no one but God can forgive sin. And Jesus, it says he, he, he hears, he sees their thoughts. And he responds to it. We see Jesus do this often with the Pharisees, seeing their hearts and rebuking them, not only for what they say and do, but for what is in their heart. And here's what's, wild. here's what's crazy is these guys are the teachers of religious law. They should know the scripture. They should know the word. But the pride in their hearts causes them to miss it. They totally miss out. They see a miracle right in front of their eyes and they totally miss out on what God has for them. Miss out on God's best for their lives. You see the Pharisees put a good deal of effort into the outward religious show without ever coming to love God in their hearts. That's why I was praying earlier. We don't ever wanna go through the motions. There's no value in religious routine. 
If your heart is not touched in these moments that we have together, we've wasted our time. Your, 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 your time here is, is worthless. If God doesn't touch your heart, if you don't hear from God, there, there's no amount of religious routine and, and show that we can do here that makes this worth our time. You checking off a box and being here and going through some routine doesn't, doesn't bring favor in the eyes of God. No, no, we're here, we're here to meet with God. It's why I'm over my time by a, a decent amount right now and I could care less. I'm, I'm not joking, I could care less. I'm not here to check a box. I, I love this stuff. I don't know about you, but my heart has been touched. And when your heart has been touched, you want to be in the presence of God. You want to hear from God. You want to worship God. They missed it because they went through all the outward religious show, but their hearts had not been touched. There was no love for God in their hearts. And so they missed it. God was right in front of them, showing himself, revealing himself just like God is doing to a lot of you right now, showing himself, revealing himself, speaking to you. And, and some of you sadly are probably missing it because you're just here for the religious routine, for the outward show, and it's killing you because your heart has not been transformed. It has not been changed. There's no love for God in his presence. And so you're missing it. Gosh, my prayer is, our prayer is right now, even in this moment, the spirit is moving in your heart, touching your heart, transforming your heart, giving you a love and passion for these things. But that's something only God can do. And as we see here, it's a miracle, like just like these miracles that only God, only God can do. Jesus was offensive to these religious people. He's also offensive to non-religious people. Jesus said, I came for those who know they're sick. I came for those who know they're sinners. He's talking to sinners saying, I came for those who know they're sick, who know they're sinners. So they have to be thinking, so you're saying I'm sick? You're, you're saying I'm a sinner? Jesus said, I'm the only way to the Father. A, a non-religious person hearing this, you're saying I'm sick, I'm a sinner, and there's no other way to heaven except through you. These are the things, some of the things that Jesus said. Jesus was offensive to religious and the non-religious. Luke here uses, this is the first time in Luke where we see Jesus refer to himself as the son of man. Jesus refers to himself as the son of man 69 times in the gospels. It's his favorite designation of himself. And it comes from Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 and 14, where Daniel has this vision and he sees this rock coming down from the clouds out of heaven that destroys this statue that represents the governments and nations of this world. And Daniel says, I, I saw this rock coming down out of heaven, coming on the clouds, coming from the clouds. And Jesus says, I'm the son of man. He says, he calls himself son of man 69 times in the gospels. And we don't have, the gospels tell us that we don't have everything that Jesus said and did in the gospels. We just have some of it. And so Jesus's favorite designation of himself, the gospel writers wanted us to know is son of man. Here's what he's saying. I'm the one that came from heaven. I'm the one that came down from the clouds. 
And here's what he's also saying. I'm the one who's coming down out of heaven again one day. I'm the one that's coming down out of heaven from the clouds when I return. Jesus said, I'm the Daniel 7 rock who came from heaven, who came from God. I'm the son of man. That's me. Jesus is saying, I came from heaven. I came from God. And so because I came from heaven, because I came from God, because if you've seen the father or seen me, you've seen the father, the father and I are one. Jesus says, I am God. He's, he's basically saying, I am God. And so when he sees this paralyzed man, that's why he says, your sins are forgiven. He sees his faith, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees say, who does this God think he is? No, no one can forgive sins, but God. So Jesus, here's what you got to understand. By forgiving this man's sin is claiming to be equal to God. Yet once again, here we have Jesus very clearly saying, I am God. I'm God in the flesh. Make no mistake. Jesus claimed to be God. And he does it once again here. Your sins are forgiven. Who is this guy? They're saying, who, who is this guy who's committing blasphemy, claiming to be God? But here's the thing. Jesus didn't say it, didn't just say it. He proved it. And so he says, what, what's, what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say to this man, get up and walk. And so watch this. Here's what Jesus says so that you will see that I have the authority to forgive sin. So, so, so what's that code for? So that you will see that I am God and I have the authority to forgive sin so that you will see it. So, so here we're going to have a sign so that you can see it. What happens? Miracle. Get up and walk. So, so what is the purpose of the miracle? It's a sign that points to a greater and deeper and grander and bigger reality that Jesus is who he said he is, that he is the son of God, that he has the ability and authority to do the greatest miracle of all. We said this two weeks ago, and that is to forgive sin. And so Jesus says, get up and walk. And the man, the man gets up and walks. Jesus doesn't just claim to be the son of God. Jesus doesn't just claim to be able to forgive your sin. He proves it with these miraculous signs and wonders. Jesus doesn't just claim to be the son of God and the only way to heaven. He proved it by rising from the grave, conquering sin and death and him who holds the power of sin and death, that is the devil. He proved it. There's resurrection from the grave. And I know some of you are here and you're like, man, but I, I don't know about this Bible. You know, people have told me about the Bible and, and um, I, I've heard, you know, about the, the Bible being written by man and, and having these errors or inconsistencies in it. And no one's really ever able to point any of those out. And, and anyone I've ever studied is pretty easily explained. But I know you might be here and you're like, eh, you know, I don't know what to think about the Bible though. Like the Bible's the one, is the only thing that ever says that Jesus performed miracles and rose from the grave. False. We have many outside sources from Jesus' own enemies that said Jesus was a miracle worker. I'll give you about three or four. For those who reject the gospel accounts, we have the Babylonian Talmud, which said that Jesus performed great works through sorcery. They said he was a miracle worker. They just said that he did it through the power of magic, witchcraft, sorcery. Josephus, a Jewish historian, the most famous Jewish historian there is, who was not a believer, said this about Jesus. Jesus wrought surprising feats. 
He did miraculous things is what he's saying. The Toledot Yeshu, another Jewish uh, source of, of history says this, they brought to Jesus a lame man who had never walked and Yeshu spoke over the man and the leper was healed. Celsus, a Greek writer, a Greek historian said this, not Christian, another enemy of Jesus, said that Jesus, they didn't know how, somehow acquired miraculous powers. They, they, they didn't know how, they just said he had miraculous powers. So even Jesus' enemies recognized that Jesus was a miracle worker. And so for those who reject the gospel accounts, you still have to grapple with the fact that enemies of Christianity, enemies of Jesus admit that Jesus had a reputation of being a miracle worker. And when you have an enemy willing to admit something positive about their opposition, that admission is a strong indicator of what the people are saying is really true. Jesus was a miracle worker proving that he was who he said he was, the son of God. You ever seen that movie, A Few Good Men? Let me see a show of hands. A Few Good Men, Jack Nicholson, Tom Cruise. Okay, a lot of us have seen it. All right, you, you probably remember it's the most famous scene in the whole movie. Uh, Colonel Jessup's up on the stand. Tom Cruise is questioning him, you know, with that smirk on his face, you know, whatever. And Colonel Jessup can't stand it. And so Colonel Jessup's going off. You need me on that wall. You want me on that wall. And Tom Cruise is over there saying, I want the truth. And Colonel Jessup says what? Yeah, you can't handle the truth. Very popular scene in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the truth. Well, these two passages point to three truths that we're gonna summarize everything that we just read. Three truths that we have got to get a handle on. It's probably the three most important truths that you must get a handle of in this life. Number one, the first one is the truth about sin. And here's the truth about sin. You are the leper. You're the leper, you're the paralyzed man. You know, a lot of times in the scripture, we like to think that we're David or maybe we're one of the disciples. And it's, no, it's more often it's we're Goliath. We're the Pharisee, we're the leper, we're the paralyzed man. You see this leprosy, this, this man who's paralyzed, it's all a picture of sin. That sin is what affects your sight. It affects your hearing. It affects your thinking. It affects your feeling. It destroys your life and all of your relationships. Theologians call it total depravity. That we are totally depraved before God. Sin has totally corrupted us head to toe, inside and out. And that this sin is totally and completely disgusting to God. Just like leprosy. Our sin is infinitely evil and wicked before an infinitely holy and righteous God. It's absolutely disgusting to him. He cannot have it in his presence because he is infinitely holy and righteous. 
This leprosy, this paralyzation is a picture of us in our sin. We are totally and utterly wicked and evil in the eyes of God. There's nothing that we can do about it. And we cannot in our paralyzation because of sin, we cannot approach God. That's why the scripture says you're dead in your sin. There's nothing that you can do. And yet, how does Jesus respond to the leper? He moves towards him and he touches him. The leper falls on his face, recognizing there's nothing I can do, but Jesus, if you're willing, you can do it. You can heal me and you can cleanse me. He recognizes there's nothing I can do. The leper's paralyzed on his mouth. There's nothing I can do except come to Jesus. And even though our sin is infinitely disgusting, evil, and wicked in the eyes of God, and he cannot have it in his presence. He sends Jesus to touch us, to pronounce over us, get up and walk. And God does a miracle in our hearts and in our lives and sets us free and cleanses us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't do anything for it, but he cleanses us. There's nothing that we could do. And so Jesus comes and does it for us. But, but here's what we've, we've got to understand. Even though Jesus includes the excluded, the excluded from God, Jesus comes and includes the excluded. It's done according to law. It's that God is infinitely holy and righteous. And so how can he be in the presence of sin of our leprosy, how can Jesus touch us and cleanse us? And how can we be forgiven of our sin? It must be done according to law. And so that leads us to the second truth, the truth about salvation. The truth about salvation. Luke is saying these guys are at the end of themselves. They're, they're falling on their face. They're, they're, the, the paralyzed man's been taken in through the roof on a stretcher. They're throwing themselves on the mercy of Jesus. There's nothing that they can do. And as we said just a second ago, in a word, in a touch, God cleanses, he heals, he forgives. And in the same way, there's nothing that we can do. It's a miracle that God has to do for us as he speaks a word over us and says, you're forgiven, you're healed, you're, you're cleansed of your sin. It's a complete work of God for whoever would come. It's a complete work of God from start to finish. But it is total and it is complete. You see, it was believed that you were sick and you were sick because of your sin and until your sins had been paid for, you wouldn't be well. And so when Jesus heals this man of leprosy, when Jesus tells this man to get up and go walk, the, the healing is instant and complete. Showing the community, showing the people that this man's sins have been totally forgiven. There's nothing left for him to pay. It's instant, it's immediate, it's complete. It's total, it's an act of God that no one could do for themselves, but it's been done according to law. Jesus reaches out his hand and touches the unclean leprous man and in the process becomes unclean. I said this a little bit ago, 
Your disease becomes mine, you receive my cleanliness, I take your uncleanliness. Jesus becomes the healer by becoming the leper himself. And all of this I said was a picture of something bigger, greater, grander. Second Corinthians five says it like this. He who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus becomes a leper in order to be the healer. Second Corinthians five just says it like this. He who knew no sin became sin. He became sin for us so that those who put their faith in Jesus would have their sin, their uncleanliness taken away and receive the righteous, clean life of Christ by faith in Jesus. But it was all done according to the law. That's why Jesus had to die. You see the cross is where the justice and righteousness of God meets the mercy and love of God as all the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus for your sin and my sin, Jesus takes on the wrath of God so that by faith in Christ, your sin can be forgiven. It will all be done according to law. God is good and just and holy and righteous in that he has punished sin and his own son, Jesus. For you and I who put our faith in Jesus, we receive the forgiveness of our sin. At our church, we have what's called the City Sevens, seven foundational truths that tell us what we believe and, and why we believe these things. And City Seven truth number three is this week, and it says this, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Well, since all have sinned and the wages of sin is death, Jesus had to die on the cross to pay the fine for my sin so that I could be made right with God. This is the truth about salvation. It was done according to law. Jesus had to die on that cross to take the wrath of God for your sin and my sin so that you and I could be the bird covered in blood that flies away free and clean. It's not something you can do for yourself. It's the grace and mercy of God seen in the cross of Jesus. The third truth that we've got to get a handle of is the truth about the Savior. The truth about the Savior, the Pharisees say, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? Jesus, again, claiming to be Lord, claiming to be God. And that's the only options we're given. He's either God or he's a liar or a lunatic. He's either Lord or he's a liar or a lunatic. He's a liar, he knew he wasn't who he said he was. He's a lunatic, he really believed that he was, but he was crazy, he was out of his mind. Or he's Lord, he is who he said he is. We're not left with another option. And so there is no option that says, well, I like Jesus and I like some of the things that he said, but I'm not really sure about the Bible. I'm not really sure about church. I'm not really sure about him being, him being God. He doesn't leave us those options. He, he said he was God. He said, he's the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father except through him. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. And everything we have in the scripture is true. I love what this theologian said this week about this passage. He said this, or wrote that I read this week about this passage. He said, this man, the paralyzed man, this man walking means God is talking. This man walking means that God is talking. He is who he said he is. It's the truth about the savior. He's God. Our big idea today is this, from the lowest place, you can call on the highest name. From the lowest place, 
because of the grace of God, the mercy of God, you can call on the highest name. There's an old hymn called Amazing Grace that went like this, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a leper, a paralyzed man like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. If you're here today and you wanna give your life to Jesus, jump on our app, fill out our connect form and let us know that you're committing your life to Jesus today. And Christian, if you've made that decision, then you and I walk away like the leper, like the paralyzed man, going and telling everyone we know and worshiping the savior because of the great news of the gospel. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us and enable us, God, to get a handle on these three truths. The truth about sin, the, the truth about salvation, the truth about our savior, Jesus. By your spirit, would you move in our hearts right now? God, that we wouldn't just go through religious routine, but, but our hearts would be moved and, and touched by, by your spirit and through your word as we worship together. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would stir our hearts for the greatness, the glory, the beauty of the gospel that we might go and tell everyone we know, just like the leper did, that we might go home worshiping and praising God, just like the paralyzed man did. Move in our hearts. We pray that this wouldn't just be words, but they would be life. It would be a fire, God, that wells up, a spring that wells up inside of us to overflowing. Pray it in Jesus' name.